right. Hey, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13 and then Matthew 25. So we'll be in both places uh, this morning. We'll, we'll eventually get to Matthew 13 and then flip over to Matthew 25. And listen, if you're new to the Bible, don't stress about it. I've got my Bible that I'll read from. And then we also will have the words up on the screen if you're struggling to find it. So a couple things. Th- throughout the, the life of our church, they're, they're uh, kind of the, m- the most often thing that we do when it comes to preaching is we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll work our way through that book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've just got done doing that with uh, the book of Hosea and the book of Jonah. And uh, there are other times in the life of the church where we'll press pause on doing a book of the Bible and we'll just talk about something that's really pressing and really important in the life of our church. And, and that's what this series is today, A Sacred Life. I'm really, really excited to jump in. So Matthew 13, verse 44, let me read this to you. Here's what it says. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this last week, my, my little guy, my son, turned one year old, and that's just crazy to me that he's already one. It felt like yesterday that he was born. And we had his birthday party, and we were celebrating with family and a few friends, and just thinking about, like, man, how crazy is it that, that he's one? And I, and I was watching, uh, watching him, thinking about just how fast time flies. I've got three kids, and my oldest is almost seven. And, and I remember everything about the day that we brought her home from the hospital, and just, it's, she's seven now. And I was talking to my, my mom and dad, they were there, and, and my dad just said, yeah, you, you got to get ready, because I mean, before long, this little guy's going to have his driver's license, and then he'll be in college, and then he'll be leaving your home, and it was just setting in, just the rapid pace of time, and, and it kind of internally got my head spinning a little bit on processing, what, 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 is, what does it look like for me to be a dad to this little guy as he grows up? Like, how am I going to teach him to really embrace his calling and discover who he is and what God has created him to do and be? How, how am I going to disciple him into being a godly husband that treats his wife well? And what does it look like for me to teach him how to be a, a good dad? And it, it's probably not going to be long before I'm the one that's watching him, you know, with his son. And how, how do I do all of that? And, and, and my head just went to that place really quickly. And then I kind of snapped out of it as I had all these questions and these thoughts swirling around. I snapped out of it and I remembered that he's just sitting there in a high chair doing work on a donut, right? Just going to town on a donut. First time he's had sugar in his life and he was loving every second of it. And it just dawned on me, like, I actually don't need to be training him to be a godly husband just yet. I don't need to be training him to be a godly father just yet or embrace a sense of calling in Jesus just yet. Uh, Those things are going to come and probably way sooner than, than I'll even realize. But my job today in this season and phase of his life, my job as his dad, is to just be present with him and to pray for him and to try to do everything I can to point his heart to Jesus in small ways and to make sure that he doesn't swallow Legos on the floor. Like that, that is my number one job as a dad in this moment, right? Now as he grows up, that phase of life will shift and change and now I'm gonna have to actually help him transition from boyhood to manhood, but not just yet, not just yet. Now here's why I say all of that. I say 
I say all of that to say that as we start this new series of Sacred Life, what we're trying to do is really recover this ancient idea that God the Father doesn't treat all of us the same when it comes to discipleship. There's not this one-size-fits-all discipleship plan that he has that he just places on your life, that actually what happens with God as a good father is he takes into account the unique seasons and phases of life that we're in. So discipleship in our youth and the calling of Jesus to us in our youth looks significantly different than it does in middle life. And our discipleship and his calling on our lives in middle life is different than it is at the end of our lives when we're learning to give our lives away. And the the ancient church had this, this concept of God as a good father handing each of us an invitation of discipleship. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're exploring, he's calling out to you to come follow him and his calling to you to come follow Jesus is going to look different based on what phase and season of life that you're in. One of the most helpful books that I've read all year in my own discipleship was a book by a guy named Ronald Rollheiser. He's a Catholic, and he wrote a book called Sacred Fire. Now, like any good book, uh, a good book is like chicken wings. There's usually a lot of good meat on, on that wing, but then you have to work around the bone a bit, and that's how this book is. There was some beautiful, brilliant, helpful stuff that really shaped me and, and helped me as a pastor and as a man and as a father and husband, but there are also some really kooky, weird things. So if you go buy this book, just realize that I, I've given you the warning. There's some weird stuff in the book. Overall, it was really, really helpful, and in that book, he mentions three prayers which correspond to three different invitations from God the Father to us on our lives. So let me just give you these three prayers, these three invitations for our discipleship. Prayer number one, I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me lest I rot. I'm your bow, O Lord. Bend me lest I rot. This is describing discipleship in our youth. It's the struggle to get our lives together. We're gonna talk more about that today, but this is the struggle to get our lives together. You've got all this pent-up energy and passion and vision, but there's kind of this confusion and you're not sure how to follow Jesus. And the struggle in the early part of your life, in your teens and in your 20s, and for some of us, even in our early 30s, it's a struggle to get our lives together. So our prayer to God is, I'm your bow, O Lord, bend me lest I rot. I, I want you to use me. I want you to spin me up. I want you to, to, to make my life count for something. That's prayer number one. Here's prayer number two. I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me, but don't overbend me lest I break. And this is describing discipleship in middle age. This is, in many ways, the longest period of discipleship that we live. It's somewhere between our 30s and when we near the end of our life. I'm your bow, O Lord. Bend me, but don't break me. So what's happening with this phase of discipleship, it's, it's, it's learning to give our lives away because as life and vocation and the pressures of, for many people, marriage and parenting and just all and paying a mortgage and, 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 and having people rely on you for things, it begins to weigh heavily on you. So the early passion that you had, bend me lest I, I break, now turns into bend me, but be careful, don't overbend me because I feel my own human fragility. I feel the pressures of life weighing heavily on me. This is the invitation of Jesus to us for discipleship in middle life. And then finally, the third prayer that we're gonna explore together over the next three weeks is, I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me, and if I break, I break. 
And this is the last phase of discipleship. Some of you in this room are even headed into this last phase of discipleship to where it's not just learning to give your lives away for the good of other people, but now you're starting to think about your own death. How do I give my death away for the good of other people? How do I, how do I give not just the act of dying, but everything leading up to my death? How do I, how do I make that actually count for something weighty and beautiful, beautiful for those in my life. So what we're going to do is over the next three weeks, we're going to explore each of those prayers and trying to basically shape and form you as followers of Jesus into what it is to embrace his invitation of discipleship on your life in whatever phase or season of life that you find yourself in. And then after this series, we're going to jump into a, a series over the, the seven letters of Revelation. It'll, it'll be called Letters to the Church. And this is going to be looking at each of those letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. Today, we're talking about discipleship in our youth. Specifically, those of you that are in your teens, your 20s, and your early 30s. Now, if you're not in that phase, don't like check out because you actually need to know this stuff so that you can help initiate people into adulthood, right? So don't check out on this, but I'm specifically talking to teens, 20s, and some of you even in your early 30s, discipleship in our youth. Man, I, here's what's crazy about this. It's one of the, the greatest joys of my life to be able to pastor a church filled with a lot of young people. And I think that's because I am myself a young pastor and have been for ever since I've been a pastor, been a young pastor. And what's been fun about that is, is we tend to draw a little bit more of a younger crowd because of that. And so often our prayer has been, God, send us people with gray hair or no hair, please. Uh, because we have so many people that are in this, this young phase of discipleship. And it's a real pleasure because when you walk into a room filled with young people, which is nearly half of our church are in this phase of discipleship, nearly half of our church, when you walk into a room filled with young people, it just does something to you, doesn't it? You feel this vibrancy and this life. And, and I've even had older people say, one of the things I love about being a part of Frontline is that there are so many young people. It's, it's, it, there's life there. There's vibrancy there. And that's a, that's a joy and a pleasure for me. There's something just unique about young people and the excitement and the, the energy that they give off. It's almost, it's almost contagious, the, the last few Tuesday nights, I've had the ability to go to, the opportunity rather, to go to OU and uh, preach for about 150 to 200 college, college students. And it's been amazing walking into a room of college students and just the, the passion that's in that room, the, the sheer hunger for life. It's like, yeah, I want more of that. I'd love to have a church filled with six, seven, eight hundred college students alone. I just love it, right? But in the same breath, it's so fun and beautiful, but it's also really, really terrifying. It's really terrifying because that same passion and that same energy, if it's not directed or if it's misguided or if those people have not been initiated properly into adulthood, it can be a dangerous, dangerous thing, can't it? A really, really profoundly dangerous thing. Uh, let me explain it like this. There's something that happens at puberty that's meant to push us out into the world, it's been said that both God and nature conspire against us in our puberty to launch us out into the world. There's something that happens where there's this internal push, this internal shove, and, and, and this, you can see it early on in life, but it becomes heightened and really, really, uh, uh, you become cognizant of it when you hit your puberty season of life, and there's something in you where you just begin to want to figure out who you are apart from your parents. Who am I apart from, and even if you had a great upbringing with mom and dad that loved you and home was stable and, and you had a sense of identity and, and acceptance at home, 
no matter how great your, your home life is, when you hit this phase of life, there's something that happens where it just pushes you out into the world and you have this desire to go. You have this desire to individuate. You have this desire to leave home. And, and I think of my, my little son. He's crawling around on the floor and he's got this hunger for life and he wants to quite literally take everything into his mouth, right? So he'll find something on the floor and he's like, oh, a bug, ah, oh, paper, ah. Like it doesn't matter, you know, ball of fuzz and he's just shoving it into his mouth and, 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 and he's, just, he's just hungry to explore. He's hungry to grab. He's hungry, hungry to experience and in many ways, that's what it's like to be in our, our teenage years, isn't it? Except we're, like, we're not picking up things off the floor, but we've got this hunger to just experience, this hunger to learn, this hunger to grab a hold of life and experience it for all that it is. But with that, with this internal push to leave home, to individuate, to go, becomes this incredible struggle in life. This incredible struggle in life that Jesus is inviting us to respond in a certain way. Before we get to Matthew 13, let me just list off some of these struggles that I think people in their teens and early 20s and sometimes even 30s tend to face. The first is the struggle of sexuality. The struggle of sexuality. There's this unique struggle to get our lives together in terms of our own sexuality and our youth. Uh, it's, it's really bizarre, isn't it, that in puberty and c- after the years of puberty, we're given an adult body far before we're given adult emotions or adult wisdom to know how to handle those raging hormones that we have. So here you are in a fully adult body, but y- your, your, your emotions and your mental wisdom hasn't caught up. And so there's this real struggle that begins to take place in terms of our sexuality. And that's, just a, that, that's one of those places of discipleship that Jesus is uniquely pressing on if you're in this phase of life, the the struggle of our sexuality. Here's another one, the struggle of restlessness. The struggle of restlessness. Puberty hits us all with this flood of emotions and it sends us out of our homes with this restless desire for more. And often what happens is we have these grandiose dreams and visions for our life. Here are all the things that I'm gonna be. Here are all the things that I'm gonna do. Here are all the ways that I'm gonna conquer. And, and, and it creates the sense of restlessness. But then you mix with that, not just these grandiose dreams of what our lives could be, but also this weird sense of being confused and insecure about who we really are. We haven't quite figured out who we really are. Ronald Rollheiser says it like this. He says, we are not born into this life with a clear sense of who we are, an easy sense of self-worth, a solid sense of security, and a sure conviction that we are wanted, loved, and lovable. In biblical terms, we are born anxious. And so what this does is that this launches us out on a quest to try to find some sort of identity, some sort of meaning, some sort of significance. We're just restless. And so we go to things like friends. We go to things like intimacy, uh, trying to find someone to fall in love with, a vocation or a career, the, the right place to live, trying to find financial security. The, the, there's just this hunger and this search, this restlessness to figure out who am I, why am I, and what is my purpose? This is a unique struggle in our youth. Here's another one, the struggle of non-commitment. The struggle of non-commitment. Now, um, I, I'm not trying to be like 
derogatory or mean, uh, but if you're a millennial, which I am a part of that group, um, you and I are not known for being really, really committed people, right? So if you're just curious about the outside view of what it is to be a millennial, it has nothing to do with commitment. In fact, there's this real struggle to commit to anything in this season of life, real struggle. And really, it's rooted in FOMO. And if you don't know what FOMO is, then you're not in this season of life, and I'm going to explain it to you. FOMO is the fear of missing out. And you begin to realize that every time I say yes to this thing, I'm saying no to these other things. And every time I say yes to this person, I'm saying no to these other possible candidates for love and intimacy. And every time I say yes to this job, I'm saying no to these other jobs. And yes to this night out, I'm saying no to those nights out. And and there's this real struggle in this phase of discipleship with commitment. There's this fear we don't want to settle we don't want to get trapped. We don't want our lives to, to wake up and realize, man, this is not what I wanted. There's a fear of that. Another one, the struggle of loneliness. The struggle of loneliness. The older you get, the less you have this driving need to constantly be around people, right? I think pastoral ministry and getting older has driven me fully into being an introverted person. It's like I'd be okay if I was on a deserted island all by myself for the rest of my life, right? Uh, There's something about that that seems attractive. Um, The older you get, you just begin to crave solitude in ways that you didn't when you were younger. But that's not true when you're in your youth. This isn't the case. When you're in your youth, there's this craving to be around people constantly, right? There's this hunger. I've got to have relationship. I've got to have people in my life. There's this fierce desire. And it's crazy, even though we're the most connected culture. There's social media connection. There's, there's smartphones. There's all these ways that we have people constantly surrounding us. And there's parties all the time. And there's all this stuff. We feel this internal, deep sense of loneliness that we're not really sure what to do with. We're looking for family. We're looking for, does someone really know me? Does someone really want to love me? There's a struggle for loneliness. And then finally, and you can really summarize all of those struggles like this, there's a struggle, this longing for home. There's a longing for home. This is the ultimate longing of someone in this phase of life. Uh, Ronald Roheiser, again, he says it like this. He says, deeper than our wanderlust and our desire for adventure is the desire to find our way back home Ultimately, we want the adventure only so that we can savor it and tell it around the fireplace at home. And that's true. That's true of us in this struggle. So here's the question. How does Jesus meet us in these phases of life? How does Jesus come to someone with all of these struggles and more, but these are some of the bigger ones? How does Jesus come to us, and what is his invitation to us in our teens and in our 20s and sometimes in our 30s? Well, there's actually two of them that I want to show you real briefly. Here's the first one, and it comes from Jesus in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of a great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In this parable, Jesus is is trying to describe the value and the beauty of getting Jesus and the kingdom. And he says that once you discover the beauty and the value of Jesus and his kingdom, it so far outweighs everything else the world holds out to you that you are willing to give it all away. You're willing to sell it all just to acquire that. You want Jesus and you want his kingdom. 
But there's this unique reality that, especially for people in their youth, they're just treasure hunters and pearl seekers, right? They're just, they're just kind of seeing the world as all these potential ops and options for treasure and for pearls. And so what's happening, this is, it's not that that's not true of us in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, but there's something unique about being in our youth where we're looking to the world to, to find something that's going to name us, something that's going to give us significance, something that's going to fill this, this what, what Blaise Pascal, this uh, old theologian and mathematician, called the infinite abyss of our heart. And it's like we've got this infinite abyss, this desire just to cram and crave and and put all this stuff inside of us looking for something to satisfy our souls. And here's what I want you to hear, that culture's invitation to you in your youth is to look to something other than Jesus and his kingdom to fill you. The invitation of culture is to look for family or security or fame. You know, maybe you can hit it big on YouTube, or maybe you can go insta-famous, or maybe something's going to happen and your life is going to blow up. Money, sexual fulfillment, romance, respect, freedom, experience, nature. There's all these options. Courage, honor, patriotism, working hard, finding a career, leaving a creative legacy. Listen, none of those things are bad, but that's what culture is holding out to you, saying, here's your treasure and here's your pearl. Just give it all away to get this. This is so crazy when you think about people in your life and people in my life that have honestly spent the last 15, 20 years of their lives just going on a treasure hunt and a pearl-seeking quest, trying to find something in this world to give them meaning and significance. I graduated from high school 13 years ago, which to some of you doesn't sound like a long time, but to me is crazy that it was 13 years ago that I graduated from high school. And I remember like my graduating class, there are people that were just brilliant. There are people that had a hunger for life. There are people that had so much potential to do incredible things. They had idealism. There's all these things. And you know what 13 years of being a treasure hunter and a pearl seeker has left them? It's left them with more addiction more disillusionment, broken relationships, and in some really, really bad places. They've spent the last 13 years just looking to something. They've gone, the, the world has handed them all these applications. Here could be your treasure. Here could be your pearl. And they've sought and they've pursued, but they have not yet found what it is that they're craving. So many people that I graduated with, that's true of. And why is this? Well, I love the words of C.S. Lewis. He says in Mere Christianity, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world could satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, all these invitations for treasure and for pearls to name you and define you, and what Jesus is saying to you is this. If you're in your teen years, if you're in your 20s, if you're in your 30s, this is true of everybody, but in a, in, in a unique way, he's coming to you, and he's saying, sell it all, give it all away, and buy the field. Jesus is saying, I am the treasure that you want 
My kingdom is what you're searching for. Literally give it all away. Stop trying to go to these other things to name you and fill you. I'm the one that you want. When you discover me, it really truly is having complete and total surrender, giving everything up so that you can just have me. It really is worth it. So if you are a teenager in the room, if you're in your early 20s, I need you to hear that invitation from Jesus as unique to you. He's looking you in the eyes. He's saying there's all these other potential options Sell it all, give it all away, and get me. Get me. This is what it is to follow Jesus in our youth. It's to say yes to the most basic call of discipleship, which is come and follow me. That's what he wants from you in this phase of your life. Now, how do you know if you've done that? How do you know if you've stepped into total and complete surrender? And maybe you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, and you're like, yeah, I've done this. How do you know that you've actually completely surrendered your entire life to Jesus. Well, St. Augustine, he had this unique thing that he said. He kind of proposed a deal in one of his writings, and I, I want to propose the same deal to you. Here's what he says. He says, imagine God comes to you and offers you this. I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing forbidden. You will never die. Never have pain. Never have anything that you do not want and always have everything that you do want except for just one thing. You will never see my face. And he goes on to say this. Did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. See, the way you know you've been captured by the love of God is that when you would say, yeah, even if he offered me the world, it's, it's not what I want. Even if he offered me all the pleasures, all the things, all the stuff, if, if a chill arose in your heart when you heard that, you will not see my face. No, that's not what I want. What I want is to see his face. If that was your response, then that's an indication that you have stepped into complete and total surrender to the most basic calling of Jesus on your life. Sell it all, give it all away, so that you can have Jesus and the kingdom. That's invitation number one. Uh, Invitation number two, real briefly. uh, If invitation number one is our calling to Jesus, then invitation number two is what do we do now once we come to Jesus? Once I've given my life away, how do I live? Well, Matthew 25, I want you to turn there. Matthew 25, go to verse 24. Um, This is going to give some meat on the bones of the skeleton of not just our calling to Jesus, but now our calling for Jesus. How do we live our lives specifically with all these unique struggles in our teen years and in our our 20s? Uh, There's this parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, and it's this parable of, of a master coming to three different people and giving them talents. So he goes to one person and he gives them five talents. Uh, he goes to another person and gives them two. And he goes, goes to another person and gives them one. Uh, now, talents in that day and age, it's like a sum of money, right? Um, and, and it's kind of the idea of where we get the, the phrase talent. Like, oh, you're really talented. Kind of comes from this concept here. But Jesus comes or this master comes and he gives uh, three different people three different amounts. Five, two, and one. The first servant, what he does is he takes his money and he invests it and he doubles it. The second servant takes his money, he invests it, and he doubles it. The third servant, out of fear of the master, he takes his money 
and he buries it in the ground. Now look at what Jesus says in this parable, starting in verse 24. He also said, who had re- he, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? In other words, that's a question. He's not affirming that statement. He's saying, you knew that? That's not true of me. Verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is this parable teaching? Well, so many things, but let me just quickly, quickly in closing pull out four things. Number one, this parable is Jesus coming to you, specifically those of you in your teen years and your 20s, and he's saying, your work and your effort actually matter. Don't think for a second that your life is irrelevant and that you can just kind of coast on by and that this is the season of your life to have fun and then the the, the later part of your life is the season to really get serious about things. No, your work and your life matter now. What you do and how you see the world and the effort that you put into it, man, it's a big deal. You're not just called to Jesus, but you are inherently called for Jesus into the world. So you're actually supposed to see your life and your job and your school and your mom and dad relationship and, and, and the complexities of navigating your teen, and tw- teen years and 20s. You're supposed to see all of that as what I am doing absolutely matters. My work matters, and I'm called to live a life of grace-fueled effort. This doesn't mean that God loves you more if you work hard, but he's saying, I've placed you here on this planet, and actually your decisions are a big deal. They matter. They're significant. That's the first thing this parable teaches us. Here's the second one. You and I are, are not all created equal. Now, before you boo me off the stage and accuse me of cultural heresy, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible absolutely 100% teaches that we are created equal in value, worth, and in dignity. We are all image bearers of God uh, from, from all of us to our oldest years, to our youngest, wealthy or poor. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. You are all created equal in value, worth, and in dignity. But something that especially teenagers and especially people in their 20s need to grab a hold of is that we are not all created equal in terms of our gifting, in terms of our ability, and in terms of how God wants to use our lives. Guys, the honest truth is like, from a physical standpoint, I'm just nothing compared to a guy like Stephen Adams, right? Uh, I saw him in a coffee shop once, and I kid you not, his head was like this big. It was like this big. His eyebrow was as big as my forearm. It's like two, two forearms on top, above his eyes. His eye was like this. It was like a poke it, right? Like just a giant specimen of a, of a human being. And, and, and he's able to do things that I'm not. And when you apply that actually across a, a spiritual, uh, across a uh, giftedness, across a calling in life, man, there are some of you that are called to do incredibly big, important things that a lot of people are gonna know about. But there are others of you that are called to faithfully plod your small field 
day in and day out. Not a lot of people are going to notice. Not a lot of people are going to see. But Jesus has given you what he's given you, not to bury it in the ground, not to compare yourself with other people and be racked with insecurity. He's called you to be you in Jesus Christ. That's who he's called you to be. So part of growing in maturity is to embrace who he has made you and try to stop, stop trying to be everybody else that you're not. That in Jesus, he made you who you are and he's calling you to uniquely give your life away, uniquely get it together with what he's given you. Number three, we work for the master and not our own selfish purposes. We work for the master and not our own selfish purposes. This is a big one. Listen, you don't exist because you're the king and you're building your own kingdom. He is the master. He is the king and he's given you what he's given you, the talents and the gifting and the calling and the, the, the passion and the energy. He's given you what he's given you so that you would do this for him. And this is something that you've got to return to over and over. If Jesus is your greatest treasure, then what that means is that you're going to start living your life and the, even the mundane small things are going to mean that you're worshiping this Jesus as king. I love these words in Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Man, can I just speak to you if you're a teenager or in your 20s? Maybe you landed a job that you don't like. Maybe you're studying a major that you don't really care for. Maybe you're living in a place that you don't love, but you are living for the king wherever you are living. And he's placed you where he's placed you. And you're not working for your boss. You're working for the boss, Jesus. And what you do deeply matters because you're doing it for him, not for yourself and not for anyone else. It's a big deal. And then finally, number four, you and I are gonna be held accountable for the way that we live this life. There is coming a day where Jesus is going to return from heaven to this earth. He's gonna look us in the eyes and he's gonna ask you, I gave you this, what did you do with it? I gave you vision. What did you do with that? I gave you calling. I gave you energy and passion. I gave you gifting. I gave you money. I gave you, I gave you unique ability to do things. What are, you, what are you doing with this calling? And the unique invitation of Jesus in this phase of your life of discipleship is two things. Sell it all. Give it all away so that you can have Jesus and the King. And the other invitation is, man, get your life together because you serve a master. You're gonna look before him in his eyes and give an account for what you've done and how you've used what he's given you. What, don't waste your life. Give your life away for the glory of Jesus.